According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, as we turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. One week ago, we uh, were in at the end of John 15, verses 18 through 27. Examining the aspects of our position under cosmos hatred. We become the targets for cosmos hatred. Which should not be a surprise. The the world hated Jesus. The world's going to hate us. That's the way it works. We're going to build on this though as we move into John chapter 16. And we see the application of this hatred and what we're supposed to do about it. Uh, we're supposed to keep our armor on. We're supposed to remain obedient. We're supposed to t- uh, take up our cross and follow our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to see as we move into verses uh, 1 through 4 here of John chapter 16. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, that we are humble under the authority of teaching. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege we have one more time to assemble together. Father, this is a grace provision. We thank you for it. We ask for your blessings upon our assembly, that you would hedge us about, protect us. Father, uh, uh, any strange folks hanging around the property, Father, just uh, keep an eye on them for us. And uh, watch over us, Father, as we study your truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty. Hey, we pulled up this morning. Some guy was up there in the back corner of the parking lot talking on a cell phone and don't know who he was but as I walked up to, to ask him who he was he kind of wandered off and went into that commercial building right over there so all right in any event if you are following along in the outline we are ready now for main point eight uh, we have wrapped up point seven which was the content of chapter 15 on the walk to the garden Jesus continued his important ecclesiastical preview As we move on now to main point eight, Jesus picks up his train of thought from chapter 15 with a warning concerning the angelic conflict in the coming dispensation of the church. Jesus warns his disciples concerning the angelic conflict in the coming dispensation of the church. John chapter 16 uh, is the content here. Now, You recall, as uh, chapter 15 came to a close, he said, the world is going to hate you. The world is going to hate you. And in their hatred, they're going to do terrible things. They're going to throw you out of the synagogue and they're going to abuse you. And they're going to think that they're serving God by doing so. And we're going to see more of that here in in this chapter, in chapter 16. So just by way of reminder, uh, backing up to the final verses here of chapter 15, if the, verse 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. That's phileo love. The world would phileo its own. That's the rapport that the world has for the world denizens. But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. You now have a new nature. The moment you're saved, you're given that new nature. And you, are, you still live in the world, but you're no longer of the world. Important that we recognize this. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now that is a promise. That is a promise. It's not usually printed up in the little pocket promise books that they sell at Lifeway. You know, all the promises. And you you put it in your pocket and you're supposed to find encouragement in this list of promises, right? Well, here's a promise. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. All right? That's where we're headed at the end of chapter 16. Well, as a concept, it gets introduced here at the end of chapter 15. Then it says, uh, but notice also, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There is a new relationship about to be revealed called the church age. And in this, you have a body of believers that are redeemed. Described here as keeping his word or obeying the word of Christ. In other words, you say, believing the gospel and becoming saved. And on that basis, 
You have disciples that will be abiding in the living and abiding Word of God. They'll be living in truth. That will follow apostolic teaching. That will follow pastoral teaching. That will operate in the teaching ministry of the Word of God in a local church. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Alright, so anyway, this is how the... Um, this is how chapter 15 comes to an end. And so Jesus is going to build on that by teaching angelic conflict information here in chapter 16. A warning concerning the angelic conflict in the coming dispensation of the church. So let's see how verses 1 through 4 start. He says, these things I have spoken to you. These things. In other words, this upper room and walk to the garden discourse. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So that you can be kept, may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Are you willing to pay the societal price? Are you willing to be different, the odd duck? Are you willing to be the, the, uh, the uh, alien and stranger? Or does that bother you to the point where you compromise? You go along to get along. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. You become a murder victim. And they think they're serving God by putting you to death. This is the, actually a, a wonderful uh, prophecy related to the early centuries of the church, the foundational stage of the church age in those early centuries where Roman persecution was... Uh, and even before that, we're Jewish persecution. Look at what the Apostle Paul was doing before his salvation. You understand. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. When their hour comes, who's they? The persecutors, the murderers, the, yeah, the mob. And they're going to have an hour. It's their hour. He talks about Satan in his hour. But it's really his own hour. My hour has come to do the will of the Father, to go to the cross. But it's also called Satan's hour. The hour of the, of the adversary to put him to death. When their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now they have to be prepared to operate in His absence. They have to be equipped to operate with a Savior that's not walking in their midst, but seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's a new stewardship. They're on the cusp of the church age being unveiled. And that's the whole purpose for this upper room and walk to the garden discourse. It's the whole point for this John 13 through 17 to be recorded for us in the Gospel of John. It is Jesus Christ preparing the apostles of the Lamb to become apostles of the, of the church once Pentecost uh, inaugurates the church age. All right, so some things we want to see under this. First of all, doctrinal preparation for angelic conflict prevents against stumbling. Doctrinal preparation for angelic conflict prevents against stumbling. The whole point in getting this teaching is a preventative measure. It's an inoculation ahead of time. Doctrinal preparation for angelic conflict prevents against stumbling. That's why I included agonology in basic doctrinal studies. Some folks were curious about that. Some folks were uh, you know, somewhat disapproving of that, feeling that, that uh, angelic conflict really belongs more in intermediate doctrinal studies or advanced doctrinal studies, as if somehow a babe in Christ, uh, that's something that should be withheld until later, until they're old enough, you know, as if uh, a babe in Christ should not be introduced to angelic conflict. I say, day one you better be introduced to angelic conflict because day one you're in it. Day one, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, admittedly, there are more advanced things that do get withheld, but at least on a basic level, agonology ought to be given. And then you do have intermediate angelic conflict, and of course, you have advanced angelic conflict as well. But I think this passage speaks to this. I think 1 John speaks to this. When, when the, what does the passage say in chapter 2? I have written to you, Fathers, I've written to you young men. I've written to you little children. Okay? And all three age brackets have a component in the angelic conflict there in 1 John. So, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'd be willing to debate with anyone that wants to discuss it, but in my opinion, uh, it belongs in basic doctrinal studies. Angelic conflict information, at least the introduction to it. It is, an, it is a preparation for uh, and against stumbling. I mean, can you imagine not getting the information until after the fact? See, don't we, I mean, we do this with other things, right? The doctrine of marriage, don't we teach the doctrine of marriage to single people thinking about marriage someday? Or is that something that, well, you're not entitled to that until after your, your wedding, right? Then now that you're married, okay, now we'll give you the doctrine of marriage. See, you don't know what you were getting into, but man, <laughs> now you really need to hit the books hard with some remedial, remedial study. No, you get the study ahead of time. You get the study ahead of time so that you're prepared for it when that assignment comes. Again, these things I have spoken to you so that, purpose clause, you may be kept from stumbling. If you have the preparation ahead of time, if you have the equipping ahead of time. Now, it's not a guarantee that you'll have victory. Because, why? Because we don't always use what we're given. We don't always apply the doctrine we know. But you're much better off knowing it so that you can apply it uh, rather than being ignorant of it whereby you know, there's really no application possible other than maybe you know, just dumb luck happening, happening, to, happening to apply the doctrine without knowing what you're doing. No, you want to know what you're doing. You want to have the doctrine. You want to have the equipping so that you can then make the volitional choice to be obedient to the will of God and make uh, application there. All right? Now, what else do we see related to this? Um, so that you will be kept, you may, may, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Subjunctive mood is the language of potential based upon your obedience, your faithfulness, your willingness to uh, accomplish what it is that he has for you. All right. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Here's another clue for what the coming church age is going to be like. <laughs> We're going to live in a world of conflict whereby we are the ones who are really serving God. There's no doubt about that. Our stewardship is a, is a stewardship of serving God in the church age. But those that are working against us think that they also are serving God. You see how that works? And we're convinced we are, and so are they. <laughs> and so are they. All right. That's why we have to just... Trust in the Lord in, in a whole lot of grace applications. He walks in the midst of the lampstands. He holds the stars in his right hand. And that's true for this local church. But guess what? It's also true for all those other local churches out there, even the ones that are doing things we don't agree with. Is it my job to fix them? Christ is the head of the church. All right? He's the one that has to deal with this. There's more uh, that we get into when you start studying Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You start seeing the synagogue of Satan, that which stands uh, opposed to the legitimate lampstands that Jesus Christ uh, leads. All right. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that, purpose clause, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. You cannot have doctrinal recall of anything you haven't studied. You have to study it ahead of time. You have to hide it within your heart. You have to treasure it within your heart. You have to have it to the point where it's uh, available for recall and not just simply, um, you know, um, again, as I said, if you don't hide it within your heart, it's not going to be there to apply in the time of testing. You're not going to have time to say, oh, let me pull out my notebook. Oh, let me replay that tape. Let me remind myself of what Pastor Bob said way back when. See, no, you should have been listening way back when because now is the time of application. All right. In the second part of verse 4. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. We realize that there actually is a, uh, a progression. There are things that you cannot have too soon. There are things that would be too early for you to have, but you can have on later occasions. You can have under different circumstances, under different uh, applications. And this is what happens here. He gave them what they could handle at the time. And then uh, he's giving them what they need now because he's leaving. There are going to be other things that uh, he's, he, wish, he wishes that he can give to them. And uh, they're not going to be ready for them. And we'll see them coming up here towards the end of chapter 16. That uh, he has much more to say, but they're not yet able to handle it. 
So we'll talk about that as well when we get that far. All right. Second principle I want to get out of this. This is verses 4 through 6. Denial is not an option. Denial is not an option. Such doctrine must be faced with complete acceptance. Denial is not an option. We cannot, one pastor called it Operation Ostrich. You know what, you know what they meant by that? What does an ostrich do? Sticks his head in the sand, right? Here comes danger, stick your head in the sand because you don't want to see it. Okay, well, it might be effective in not seeing it, but when your head's stuck in the sand, your hindquarters are vulnerable to getting bit off. All right? Not going to stop the dingo from coming along and uh, eating what it wants to eat there. All right. Denial is not an option. And I've had believers tell me they don't like angelic conflict teaching. Because angelic conflict teaching, has they've observed, has led to uh, angelic conflict reality. <laughs> In other words, when you study the doctrine, uh, testing hits you. So I don't like that. So would you, would you stop teaching that? Let's just teach something friendly. Teach something light. See, and, and then they won't maybe be so blatant. One person did come right out and say, if you, could you teach something less, um, you know, less intense so we can have some lesser testing? See, well, can't shrink away from teaching the whole counsel of God's word. And the moment you do that, then I come under divine discipline. I, I'm not going to volunteer for that just so that, you know, you think you can have a lighter time of testing. That's not going to happen anyway. <laughs> All right. Notice now, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now keep in mind here, Judas is already gone. So all he's talking to is to the eleven. And they're all in denial. They're all, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Now they don't want to say, far be it from thee, Lord, this will never happen to you, because the last time Peter said something like that, he got called Satan and get behind me, Satan, and so forth. So rather than say what they want to say, they just all shut up. They just all get real quiet and they don't say anything, but they're not liking what they're hearing. They're not liking what they're hearing. They should be rejoicing. Going to him who sent me, they should be saying, wow, you're going back to the Father? Are you going to be seated as you were before? Are you going to receive the glory that you had before? You know, when you, when you hold your finger here, when you take a peek at John 17, look what he's looking forward to, that he's returning back. And in, in, in this is what he voices in his prayer to the Father and glorify, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And... Um, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. I mean, these are, these are things to be celebrated. They should be, when he says, I'm going back to the Father, they should be, hooray, this is great. Um, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The disciples should be excited that their Lord is going to be seated at the Father's right hand and now they're going to have an approach to the Father in ways they've never had before. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see that? Remember, he emptied himself. And under kenosis, when he came to earth, he humbled himself. He was born of a virgin. He laid aside his glory. You know, they've come to know him, but they've come to know the, the, the kenosis version of him. You would think they could be excited about, wow, at this time are you going to resume your former glory? At this time are you going to be seated and exalted like you were before? you think they'd be excited about that. All right, well, we'll deal with that when we get into John 17. But he says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, when doctrine is being taught, and I understand it, just you know, uh, from a from a human pastor standpoint, you know, I've taught things and and people have gotten mad. And I said, well, why are you mad? You know, is it is it is it the word of God or not the word of God? Is, is it what it says? You know, search the scriptures, see if these things are so. 
But don't get mad at me. Get mad at God. He wrote it. Why are you mad? Or why, why has sorrow filled your heart? What kind of sorrow is this? Is this a godly sorrow? Does, did God send this sorrow to produce repentance? Or do you have the wrong kind of sorrow for the wrong kind of reasons? Why has sorrow filled your heart? Was it, w- 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 these messages were supposed to be encouraging. These messages were designed to keep you from stumbling under angelic conflict application. We know the purpose clause. The purpose clause is right here. So that. You will be kept from stumbling so that you will remember what has been spoken. This is the purpose clause. To prevent them from stumbling and to give them recall of the doctrine. The purpose clause wasn't to make them sorrowful. But they were made sorrowful. See. That's why I said under point B, denial is not an option. Such doctrine must be faced with complete acceptance. Complete acceptance. Now, does that mean you have to like it? <laughs> you have to accept it as truth. It's what God's Word says. And if you don't like it, ask yourself, why do I have a different attitude than God? See, God's well pleased in all that He does. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. But hopefully a day will come, and it's probably going to be about 50 days from now on the day of Pentecost, when you are going to understand it and you're going to appreciate what it means to have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father and what it means to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And it's far superior to having uh, Jesus Christ still on this earth, walking in a, in a monopresent uh, mortal existence, and having the Holy Spirit not sent from the Father and from the Son uh, on a permanent, universal, indwelling basis. Alright? It is to your advantage. The church age is the age of advantage. We want to understand that. Probably 40 years ago, Colonel R.B. Theme taught the doctrine of the advantage. Are you familiar with that? The doctrine of the advantage. And, uh, well, here it is. It is to your advantage that he goes away. The age we live in is the age of advantage. Israel didn't have it. We do. We do. All right. So denial is not an option. Such doctrine must be faced with complete acceptance. And it's a, it's a humility test. Anytime the Word of God goes forth, search the Scriptures diligently. See if these things are so. It's called being noble-minded like the Bereans. If it's an application you say, I don't like that, then ask yourself why. <laughs> why? And who am I to say God's wrong for what He has revealed? You know say, well, if it was me, if I had planned this universe, I wouldn't have included that. Well, I'm glad you didn't plan this universe then. Because uh, your plan would have been different from his plan. And his plan is the one that exalts Jesus Christ for all eternity. You know, and isn't that what it really comes down to? Aren't we really in our finite humanity saying, I just don't like it. It hurts. It's not convenient. It, it's, it's not pleasant. Well, praise God that Jesus Christ didn't have that attitude. He wouldn't have gone to the cross. Thankfully, He did, and we got saved. This is what we deal with. All right. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Here's the third thing we glean out of this. Subpoint C. The coming church will be the greatest stewardship with the greatest advantage ever enjoyed by vested stewards. The coming church... You understand that's coming from the standpoint of the night Jesus delivered this message to these 11 guys. The coming church, for you and I, the church has been here 2,000 years already. But from their perspective on this night, as they're walking to the garden, the coming church will be the greatest stewardship with the greatest advantage ever enjoyed by the vested stewards. Remember, dispensational doctrine God administers His plan and program on this earth through vested stewards, managers of His household. Managers of His household. And since uh, May... uh, I forgot the date now. I looked it up once. Because I'm always talking about Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, right? Well, then whatever seven Sundays from there is... um, the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. 
May or June or whatever it ends up being. But that's the day the church began. And the church has been the steward. We have been the managers of God's household ever since. Prior to us, Israel were the stewards. Prior to the call of Abraham, Gentiles had stewardship. And prior to the creation of Adam, angels had a stewardship of which we don't have a whole lot of information, but we do have enough. We've got glimpses here and there to understand that they had a stewardship and angels blew it. They, they rebelled and a third of them followed Satan. And uh, that stewardship was brought to an end with the, the tohu wabohu destruction of the angelic earth. It left the earth formless and void in Genesis 1-2. All right. Well, nothing like the church has ever existed before. And it, it, really, as I look 7 through 15, I find four descriptions here that will give you a subpoint. So let's read through here. 7 through 15. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I do not, neither will he. See how that works? It's a counterfactual because he is going to go away and the Holy Spirit is coming. But if he doesn't, the Holy Spirit can't. That's the whole point. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So there's an advantage. There is an advantage. What do we have? We have a glorified Christ in the Father's presence. We have a glorified Christ in the Father's presence. That's an advantage. And we have a glorifying Holy Spirit in our presence, indwelling believers. We have a glorified Christ in the Father's presence. How handy is that? Every accusation Satan wants to make, there's a glorified Christ seated right there at the right hand of God the Father saying, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. A glorified Jesus Christ seated right there at the right hand of God the Father. And then secondly, a glorifying Holy Spirit indwelling believers. A glorifying, we'll talk about that, the role of the Holy Spirit today in spotlighting God the Father and spotlighting God the Son. Glorifying the Father and the Son, revealing them to us. You know, do I want my own burning bush? Of course not. How pathetic is that? I've got the glorifying Holy Spirit indwelling me. You know, a bush is kind of planted where it is and you've got to keep going back to that spot. The glorifying Holy Spirit goes wherever I go. It's a big improvement, I think. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a threefold conviction. This was not a ministry the Holy Spirit had prior to the church age. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. There's a conviction that is eligible to be uh, applied post-crucifixion. Was not eligible to be applied pre-crucifixion. Because the anticipated coming Messiah was going to crush the serpent's head and remove the sin of the world. But it was still in a foreshadowing and in an anticipation. No conviction was possible prior to the cross. But now... Every conviction is possible because the work is complete. Sin has been judged. Likewise, concerning uh, uh, sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Here's a conviction. Was not possible prior to the cross. Was not possible prior to a glorified Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And the righteousness of Christ imputed to the uh, royal family of God. Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And then thirdly, concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged. Again, not possible prior to the cross. Not possible prior to uh, Jesus Christ disarming the rulers and the authorities. See, the strategic victory that was achieved on the cross on that Friday, April 3rd, 3380, accomplished so much, it changed everything. 
in the, uh, in the outworking of the angelic conflict, in the nature of the power that the adversary had. The, the power, the fear of death and the power that he had there. And even the, even the nature of atonement is all changed. Because prior to the cross, believers, David and Daniel and Job and Noah and all those guys, Moses, any Old Testament believer simply had their sins covered, not removed. And they didn't die and go to heaven to be in the presence of God. Because they, 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 their sins are not removed. They're simply covered. They died and went to Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise and comfort. Not in God's presence, but not in torments either. All right. Separated from the unbelievers across that vast gulf. But they could not be brought to glory because their sins were not removed. Their sins were simply covered. They were passed over, but not removed until the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have a glorified Christ in the Father's presence. We have a glorifying Holy Spirit indwelling believers. We have a convicted world. A convicted world. No wonder, of course, that our stewardship has achieved things globally that Israel's stewardship never did. Say, well, they didn't have a great commission. Not like we did, but they did have a great commission. They had a, a global responsibility to the Gentile nations. Seventy divisions of Israel match up perfectly with seventy divisions of Gentile humanity. They do have a... Israel, in their stewardship, had a great commission of sorts, if you want to call it that. They will uh, fulfill it in the tribulation when 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to go worldwide. See... They had limited um, impact in the Gentile nations around them. Here and there, you've got examples of how a faithful Daniel can, can uh, lead to Nebuchadnezzar's salvation or to Cyrus's salvation or, or how a faithful Joseph can lead to Pharaoh's salvation. You've got, you've got a handful of instances where Gentiles come to fear the Lord. Hiram, king of Tyre, comes to fear Yahweh because of his love with, for David and the, and the testimony that David had. Or Abimelech, the, the Philistine, because of Abraham. Uh, you've got other examples of that, but not a tremendous amount. You don't have a, an entire nation. The closest, the, the amazing thing is... Um, maybe the closest they ever came, the Jewish people ever came, to having impact on an entire population group when Samaritans in mass started to accept the Pentateuch. <laughs> and the Jews hated them. Absolutely hated them. And then they ended up forming their own Samaritan Pentateuch and forming their own rival group. Think about the fruit that could have been born. Or with the Edomites, the fruit that could have been born. And instead, they just forced them to become Jews. They forced them to become proselytes. They forced all the Edomites to accept Yahweh worship. They could have had tremendous fruit. And instead, they just treated them like second-class Jews and, and undeserving citizens and so forth. And then they end up <laughs> reaping what they've sown because uh, one of those Edomites, Herod, becomes their king. And uh, the the... If you ever study the intertestamental history between the Old Testament and New Testament and the nature, the Edomites were willing in mass to accept Judaism, to accept Yahweh Elohim as, as the one true God. And yet, uh, I think the legalistic uh, Jews, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and all the different groups, um, oh, it's horrible how they, uh, how they handled that. In any event. Israel, in their stewardship for 2,000 years, from Abraham to Jesus, never had the opportunity to proclaim Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, to a convicted world. To a world under the Holy Spirit's conviction. But you and I do. You and I are given a great commission to, to make disciples of, of all nations to the uttermost parts of the earth, from, from Jerusalem to Galilee to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. We are given a great commission to follow or to, uh, to pursue, and in the process of that, we are going into a world that is under a global conviction, convicted by God the Holy Spirit because of the past completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So there's an advantage. <laughs> it's a huge advantage. All the pressure off of me. 
Uh, I'm commanded to give an, a, an account for the hope that is within me to any who asks. And why would they be asking? Well, what conviction are they under? <laughs> how, how is the Father drawing them? How are they even now ready? How, what is it that is preparing their soul to hear truth? And then my job just got easier, didn't it? And I'm not worried about going out there and giving the gospel to the biggest renegades that aren't asking questions, to the, the total pagan godless that, that hate God and whatever. Well, then I'm not obligated to give them the answer. They're not asking questions. I'm not obligated to speak. That's pearls before swine. They're, they're liable to turn and trample me. And they're, you know, they're not going to want to hear the gospel. So I don't want to give it. Not under those conditions. All right. So I've got a glorified Christ in the Father's presence. That's an advantage. That's an advantage. And even when he talks about the glory with, which I had with you before the world was, that's one thing. But he has a glory now that's even greater than that. The glory of the, the faithful work on the cross. The, the finished work. He didn't have that before he finished the work. The glorifying Holy Spirit in dwelling believers, a convicted world, there's another advantage. All right. Verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There, that's the verse I was looking for earlier. Because there were things that he said while he was with them. There were things that he sang to them now on this night that he's departing. And there were other things that he would just love to teach them, but they're not yet equipped to handle them. If he, if he tried to give them all the church age doctrine he could on this night, they wouldn't be able to deal with it. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. The advantage we have in the church to have a teaching Holy Spirit. We have an instructed church. Our fourth advantage. An instructed church if you think about it one of the great distinctions between israel and the church israel had a priesthood we are a priesthood the priesthood of israel was expected to be the teachers for the population well we are a priesthood who's our teacher the holy spirit indwells each one of us the holy spirit teaches us and yes, you have gifted pastors. And yes, you have spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And yes, you have uh, churches and teachers and places for instruction. But even with all of that, it remains the role of the Holy Spirit to, for you to make any kind of sense of what I'm speaking up here today. All right. This is how you can be edified even though you've got you know, the crummy human being that you have for your pastor. It's because it's the Holy Spirit that teaches. So when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Holiness, we've talked about the different titles for the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning, why it is that the Holy Spirit can be called the Spirit of Christ, because that's what He's spotlighting. Well, here He's the Spirit of Truth. He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will have the role that Jesus had. This is how Jesus taught in his first advent. Whatever he heard, he spoke. But Jesus was monopresent. Jesus was limited to where he was. And think about it. Everywhere he went meant that everywhere else he wasn't. Does that make sense? So if he's in Galilee, that means he's not in Judea. He's not in Perea. He's not in, he's not in uh, Philistia. He's not in anywhere, right? When he went out to the coast, he was there and he wasn't everywhere else. The monopresent teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure it was great and I'm sure it was awesome. I'm sure Jesus is the greatest Bible teacher to ever walk this earth because he was sinless. And every other Bible teacher I know of <laughs> and read about, I mean, every, every other human being is a sinner. But Jesus was sinless and perfect. Obviously the greatest Bible teacher ever. But now the Holy Spirit, He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will disclose to you. And He is omnipresent. He is indwelling every member of the church. He is in Ukraine. He's in the Philippines. He's in the United States. He's everywhere there are believers. Everywhere there are believers. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. That's why in, in point two I called him the glorifying Holy Spirit. 
We have a glorified Christ in the Father's presence who has already been given all glory, honor, power, and dominion, but additional glory that occurs on the earth through the church. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. If you think about it, do you remember the story when they're in the upper room and they're, uh, Jesus is teaching and talking about one of you will betray me and Peter says, who is it? You know, demanding, pointing to John, demanding that John uh, answer who, is, who the betrayer is going to be. And what does John do? Well, first of all, where was John? He was laying in Jesus' breast. Remember that? He's laying in Jesus' bosom. And so he leans back into Jesus' bosom and asks, Lord, who is it? Okay. But even before he leaned back to say, who is it? He was already reclining in Jesus' breast. Okay. And I like that picture. And it's, it's remarkable that Peter just assumed that John already knew when he said, tell, tell who he's talking about. And then, of course, John didn't know. But Peter assumed that he knew. Why? Well, because that, look where he was. Look how intimate he is with the Lord. Of course he knows. Now, that's the picture for what you and I have today in the church. We have a position of intimacy. We're the bride. If anybody lies in Jesus' bosom, it's the bride, Right? So positionally, that's where we are. And the, think about the, the, the access when you can just lean back and, and ask a question of the Lord. Well, we have something even greater than that. Because we have the Holy Spirit internal. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And if we're living in the Word, and if the Word is living within us, then this reciprocal abiding that takes place, notice reciprocal. We live in the Word, the Word lives in us. If that is our Christian walk, then the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit just comes alive and, and then that never gets turned off. That's never it's not like a Bible class where we start the session, we end the session. It's always in session. If you're abiding in the Word, the Word's abiding in you, and you're learning, the Holy Spirit is teaching you through the things that you see, the things that you experience, the testing you go through is instructive. So as I look at these verses here in verses one, uh, six through, 7 through 15, I see these four advantages. And nothing like this ever occurred before. Israel never had anything like this. The Gentiles never had anything like this. Angels never had anything like this. But we have it all. And it is an amazing thing to consider. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All, and what is that? What's the, what's the description of that? All things. <laughs> when he's going to take the things of mine, well, what is that? Everything. Everything. Jesus is the heir of all things. It's all for him. All things are created through him and for him. And we're in him. Everything is for us because everything is for him. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's everything. Everything. What is it that you cannot learn? What realm of doctrine are you not entitled to? Okay. We, have, we were talking about this in training this morning. The idea that pastors are eligible for certain realms of theology, that they go off to seminary to get these realms of theology, and only pastors are, are entitled to such, uh, such studies. Because you, little people, just couldn't handle it. And you're not entitled to it anyway. And you wouldn't understand it anyway. And you don't need it anyway. And all you need is just to uh, sit there like dumb sheep and just, you know, like be happy with what we bless you with as we impress you with how much we know. <laughs> okay? Because we are special. We are entitled to this special realm of you know all that is the second century gnosticism uh, the the evil of the nicolaitans and jesus christ says he hates it we want no part of that what, um, what is it that is to be disclosed to the bride of christ by god the holy spirit the things of christ and, and what are those things everything all things the father has are mine therefore i said that he takes of mine will disclose it to you this is what leads the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians to say, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 
We can rejoice over that as well. All right, so understand why this is to our advantage. Understand how it is that we have a glorified Savior at the right hand of God the Father with a greater glory than he's ever had before, a glory that's going to be beyond the glory that he had before the world was. Remember, he lays aside his privileges, and that's not all that he gets back. He gets all that back, and then he gets more so. God the Father is actually going to craft and create and devise and bestow a glory that never existed prior so that Jesus Christ receives a glory that he never had before, a glory the Father himself has never held, a glory the Holy Spirit has never held, a glory that only God the Son is entitled to because only God the Son took on the flesh, became the God-man, achieved the, the victory that he achieved. Only God the Son separated himself from the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Father doesn't know what that's about. He's never been separated from the other two members of Trinity. Holy Spirit's never been separated from two other members of Trinity. Each of them was separated from the Son, but the Son was separated from both the others. See how this works? All right. So he's going to receive a greater glory. He's going to receive, it's going to, a name is going to be bestowed upon him above every name that has been named. See? That's why it's the grace eternal plan of God for the ages is the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. All right. Now, point uh, D. And I, w- I want to rewrite this point. I have a, a handwritten note here that says rewrite. And then I notice I didn't rewrite it. It still is the same awkward expression on the board. So don't be surprised if I rewrite this before next Wednesday. The world and the church are diametrically opposed. And then I probably should just separate it out. Momentary affliction produces eternal glory. Don't be surprised if by next week this ends up being two points instead of one. It'll become points D and E. And then the current E and F will become F and G. But let's look at verses 16 through 22. We've got about 13 minutes left. Let's look at verses 16 through 22 and let's see what happens here. He is showing them their huge advantage. He is showing them um, the things that they should be rejoicing over. The reason why sorrow shouldn't fill their heart. The reason why they should be um, jazzed about the things to come. Everything that he's given them on this night since Judas walked out of that upper room and the door closed and he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. All right. Everything here ought to be just a thrill. It would be like if somehow I knew... (laughs) If I was given some kind of clue that the trumpet for the rapture of the church is going to happen today at, at 2.45 p.m., right? And, and somehow I'm given the, the lock certainty knowledge of this. How would we spend the next three hours till 2.45, right? Or four hours. How, if, if we knew that the rapture was today... And the things we have to look forward to with the wedding supper and the judgment seat of Christ and the, the crowns and the robes and everything we're going to look forward to when we're going to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't you have an interest in that? Yeah, you have a very vested interest in that. Would, that, would a message like that fill your heart with sorrow? Be cautious. I, I, I wonder if maybe it would fill certain believers' hearts with sorrow. Why? Well, because it's new, because it's different, because it's not what we're used to. Okay? Because we've grown accustomed to the things that we have now. You say, oh man, if we're leaving planet Earth tomorrow, that means, that means, um, you know, think about the things you have on this Earth that that you're attached to. You say, no, there's nothing. (laughs) There's no attachments here that you, you're not going to shed any tears for anything you're leaving behind. Well, Okay, let me just say you're the exception to the rule. Most people have attachments. Most believers have attachments. <laughs> I, you know, you wonder about some pastors. <laughs> it means they're going to lose their flocks. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose the source of their glory. You know, when the Lord comes, they're out of business. I'm out of business. I'm done being a pastor. You know that when the church age is over. I mean, who, who's going to listen to me anyway? When you're going to have Jesus? Are you kidding? No wonder I'm going to be fired. We're all going to be fired. Our gifts are done at that point. 
your evangelism gift is over. You can't evangelize in heaven. <laughs> okay? So, understand though, but there are people that they have attachments. And they're not going to want that to end. That's why the Pharisees didn't like the fact that Christ was among them. Wait a minute, the Christ is here? The Romans are going to come and take our place away, you know, remove our nation and take our place away. They didn't like the idea that the Christ was here because they were in charge of things as long as they kept Rome happy and kept the people in subjection. The, the Sanhedrin called the shots. Well, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. We start to realize that in the coming church age that there are going to be events that will take place. They're going to come place. And they're going to take place in a sequence, and then after they're fulfilled, there's going to be a new reality in place. And yet, still, they're afraid to ask questions. So some of his disciples then said to one another, "What is this thing he's telling us?" <laughs> Again, they're afraid to ask questions. Uh, so they were saying, what is this? He says a little while. We don't know what he's talking about. And they're not asking him. They're debating amongst themselves. And so Jesus knew that they wished to question him. They want to, but they can't bring themselves to do it. And so he says to them, are you deliberating together about this? Okay. That's not omniscience at work. He's a prophet. And I think even if he wasn't a prophet, he could, you know, he's not that clueless. He knows, he knows these guys pretty well. Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Are you debating about this? Don't you have this straight? I find it interesting that uh, they don't want to ask him the question. They don't want to ask him about the timetable. They don't want to ask him about the sequence of events. Why? Because they still don't want to truly accept that it's really going to happen. See, I think even when the soldiers come, no, it's not going to happen. Peter grabs a sword. Let's see if we can keep this from happening. They don't want to believe that it's happening. And even after they drag them away and they're all scattered, they can't bring themselves to believe that it's really happening. So it's like, well, if they ask the questions about a little while and a little while and a little while, if they start asking the questions about the sequence of events after the crucifixion, you know, that includes the resurrection, the post-resurrection ministry, the ascension, uh, all the things to come immediately after the cross. Well, if they start asking those questions, that means they have to admit that the cross is actually going to happen tomorrow. And so they don't want to go there. Okay? It'd be like trying to ask, how would you ask tribulational questions if you were a rapture denier? Well, you can't. Because the moment you start asking about you know, the sequence of events, signing a treaty with Antichrist and, and the invasion from the king of the north, king of the south. You start asking about tribulational events, about trumpets, bowls, and vials. The minute you start asking for clarification on the sequence of tribulational events, you've already surrendered and given up to the reality that there's a rapture that's taken us out of here. Okay? The parallel kind of breaks down because I don't know anyone that's actually a rapture denier the way they were... There are rapture deniers, but not the way that they were crucifixion deniers. Okay? They were crucifixion deniers because they just couldn't accept. Sorrow filled their heart. They couldn't accept that he was going to die. So what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Uh, they do. They just don't want to admit that they do. What is this the pastor says here or there or in the air? What is that about? What kind of goofball is that guy anyway? Okay. And that, you know, for a believer that um, is not ready for the Bema, in my thinking, the only way that a believer would not want the rapture to happen today is if you're in reversionism, walking in prolonged carnality, and the, the rapture is going to put an end to all your fun and games. <laughs> okay? In which case, you may not like it, but it's probably a good thing that it's happening because it's going to limit the damage that's done. You're, you're, I mean, your beam is already going to be pathetic enough as it is. So it's probably to your advantage that uh, the rapture comes today to cut your foolishness short. All right. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That's why I say the world is and the church are diametrically opposed. The things that the world just rejoices over, we weep over. 
And the things that we rejoice over, the world hates. The world absolutely hates. We're seeing this today with the whole Chick-fil-A lunacy, right? And and, and this jerk goes in the drive-thru and starts yelling at this girl and telling her she should be ashamed of herself and how could she work there and how could she sleep at night working in a terrible place like Chick-fil-A and how it's a wicked company and and uh, he called it wicked. I mean, talk about calling good evil and evil good. And that girl, I mean, I'm proud of her um, taking the stand and being as gracious as she I wouldn't have been as gracious as she was related to that. All right. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve. But, now notice now, your grief will be turned to joy. What's going to happen to the world's joy? What's that going to turn into? Eternity in the lake of fire, ultimately. You know, the rich man in, in this earth had good things, and now he's in torments. Lazarus, for his part, in the world had terrible things, but now he's being comforted. So there's temporal circumstances and there's eternal circumstances. But we realize right now Jesus is preparing them for their relationship to the world, to the cosmos. The cosmos hates them. The cosmos has a diametrically opposed perspective. Understand how the the Apostle John uses the term cosmos in his gospel and in his epistles. To me, it resolves everything related to the Calvinist debate over 1 John 2.2 and the sins of the whole cosmos. All right. Whenever, uh, as I said, we'll be, we'll be dealing with this in more detail next week. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. You know, how long does the labor last? Well, for the first one, longer than the rest, but each one is shorter each, with each, each uh, pregnancy, each birth. All right. But even, even the longest labor on record, whatever that is, is still a finite duration, whatever the longest labor is. And when it's done, there's a baby. And the joy of the baby drives away the, uh, the pain. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not going to illustrate that. I've not in a position to well, talk to my wife afterwards or talk to somebody you know that's had a baby or maybe you've had a baby talk to yourself um <laughs> but the point being okay this earth and your life in this world maybe you live to be a hundred when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun what is the hundred years of travail of this earth going to be like just a in fact, not only a fleeting memory, we won't even remember the things before. The former things will not be brought to mind. You will not recall the testing of this earth. None of it will be remembered in the new heavens and new earth. Of course, this connects very well to Second Corinthians 4.17. The momentary light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. We'll talk about that next week as well. All right, well, let's stop here. This is where we'll pick it up. I want to rewrite that point, probably break it down into two the way uh, the world and the church are diametrically opposed in our viewpoints and the way in which the momentary light affliction produces this eternal weight of glory. All right. Well, we'll pick this up next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study these things. And Father, um, I'm not too critical of Peter and these disciples. Of course, their sorrow has filled their heart. Um, easy for me to say <laughs> that uh, they should have rejoiced. Father, they didn't have the church age doctrine like we have. And uh, they've been waiting for the coming Messiah. And, um, you know, the scripture says Messiah must uh, abide forever. How do you say he's going to be lifted up? And, and uh, they're trying to reconcile uh, their Old Testament understanding. And there seems to be some contradictions there. And they're trying to put it all together. And... Uh, they make careful search and inquire, seeking to determine these things. And a lot of it just wasn't for them to know. So, Father, uh, we don't, uh, or I don't condemn them or criticize them too badly, but I probably would have been far worse had I been there that night, uh, Father. But be that as it may, uh, I thank you for John 13 through 17. I thank you for the upper room discourse. I thank you for 
the uh, body of teaching that he gave to his disciples on this night in which he's betrayed. He gave it to them after the traitor departs and he starts to prepare them for the coming age of the church. And Father, uh, the more I study it, the more I recognize that what we've been given is far and away beyond anything that's ever been given to human people on this planet. And so, so much more is expected of us. To whom much is given shall much be required. You've given the church more than any stewardship has ever had and you expect more from the church. So we thank you for that, Father. Work in us and accomplish what you've designed us to do. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty.